We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped gum to teeth in your throat, tiger, without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I'm Jaren Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Kyle, I'm your host, Jared Surf, and welcome to Here Be Tigers. If you've ever been curious about the real or fictional worlds those you create or what inspires, this is the show for you. Here with me tonight is... Hello, I am David Herman, a.k.a. Rhymnesis of the Brothers Herman. I am the host of uh, the Otter World side of the Geekly Oddcast, and which is the actual play side. I've got a background in running games and in writing comedy and in... A long-time appreciation of science fiction, fantasy, and interesting stories. Have we decided yet where you rank among the Hermans? I know we've established where Tom is on the list. I'm first, because I am first. I'm the oldest of the brothers Herman. All right, Tom was the better of the lesser. Exactly, there you go. Tom, of course, being the host of the the podcast itself. Mm -hmm. I I am the elder brother, the one that after the other two have... uh, run off from the troll, comes along and knocks it off the bridge. And then the other two realize, oh, why didn't we think of that? No, then the third one goes, you know what? We should hire the troll as our protector. Absolutely. That, that's how that story should have gone. Hmm. Speaking of, you had an interesting topic for tonight. Okay. So this all started because I was, I've been going through and trying to catch up on the, the games from the last generation of consoles that I missed. Namely, I, I'm rounding out like uh, my PS3 collection. You're just trying to satisfy your nostalgia addiction. Well, I mean, this one is one I could have had, uh, I could have gotten earlier because it was on the Xbox uh, 360 as well. Uh-huh. But I didn't. So uh, that's because the Xbox sucks. <laughs> so I picked up uh, Prototype, and I was playing it. And Prototype has this wonderful background, this wonderful setup, a premise. Yeah, a wonderful premise, and. Plot-wise, when they aren't getting in their own way, it's got a really fun plot with some interesting beats. But there's a problem getting from A to B. And I've spent some time searching for a word to describe what my issue was. Because, again, premise was great, but then you started trying to carry it out from the premise, and there just weren't any clear pathways. And the game was having to make some really strange narrative and structural and gameplay choices to make sure things happened. Now, I think what you're saying is you felt that the choices, while deliberate in each case, ended up leading towards sometimes incongruous solutions. It very much so. It's like things that should have appeared early on just from the very idea of what was going on took a disproportionate amount of time to show up. For the audience that hasn't played Prototype. Okay, I'm going to put this one fairly simply. Because uh, I don't want to... Starting the timer now. Yeah. Prototype is a game all about, like, there's the background of you're, like, an infected victim of a virus that makes strange mutants and all of that, and you've been turned into a monster. Rather than getting into the details of that, basically, it's sort of a game where you can play John Carpenter's The Thing in New York City, which actually leads into one of the clearest ways I can point, I can put out one of the, pro, like, where their premises did not meet their their So you beats. have the opportunity in this game to be a monster. You, you are a monster. It's not just well, opportunity. Yeah. This isn't one of those games. I don't, I don't a, just mean a monster in the metaphy- monster in the physical sense, but the metaphysical. You eat people. To like, absorb their memories. Is that the only reason you eat them? Uh, it's also to regain health. But I mean... Okay. But you are... like the whole, This isn't one of those games. So there's an example of the mechanics reinforcing the monstrosity. Oh, very much so. It's interesting because this one came out at the same time as another game called Infamous. Oh. And they both have interest, similar premises. You're given powers at the very beginning of the game. The rest of the city, they're both set in New York City, the rest of the city thinks you are a monster. But whereas Infamous was built around this mechanic of you can either try to be the hero or you can try to, or you can let go and be the monster. um, Prototype prototype, assumes that you are the monster and everyone will believe it. Right. You you are a monster. You're not necessarily a moral monster, but you are a monster no matter what you do. It reinforces because this. Because your be- existence is monstrous to most other people. Right. And it reinforces this because you have to actually be monstrous. You have to eat people. You regain health by eating people. And it's 
functionally impossible to stop from killing bystanders. It's they're too thick on the ground, and your powers just tend to have. So again, the mechanics here, the actual lay of the land, the world in which you navigate. Is there even a way to to get through this game without eating another person? Or... I, well, let me put it to you this way: I got one of the harder to reach achievements. I wasn't even trying to. It's just I wasn't setting out to play like an irredeemable, you right. know, horror. Uh, one of the achievements was to go through the game consuming less than nine civilians. Throughout the entirety of a 60-plus hour game? It, wasn't, it was less than that, but still, it's the, the, the biggest impediment to it, A, is that civilians are really easy to, to regain health on. Okay. That thing said, I never even actually considered that. But more importantly, the infected, which you can consume without a problem... They're usually running around the same time. You can very easily accidentally. And those also restore you. Yeah, that's okay. why I never went so after the... In terms of premise, the idea here is that you're going to play and exist in a world as a monstrous thing. You're not going to be given sufficient choices to escape other people's perceptions, or your own for that matter, yeah. of this existence as such. And the mechanics of the game ostensibly, or at least as you pointed out so far, reinforce that idea, both in terms of the reward or incentive yeah. for being... Like, again, it's not about being a moral monster. There are games that really push you to being the, the moral monster, and, and they can be very fun, too. This one is more along the lines of you're just a danger to the world by your existence. The consequence here is that unless you do these things, you lose. And, of course, then you as the player don't get to finish the story. Yeah, well, yes. And now, to be fair, the ending, without giving away the actual what happens in it, you do end up saving a whole hell of a lot of people. But over the course of the game, you've Killed that comes back too. into the trolley dilemma. Yeah, it's like, and you, and and part of the reason you save them is because, of course, you'd save them. Why wouldn't you? Again, the game doesn't force you to be a moral monster, but, but you're the, also saving yourself at the to, same time. Okay, so to your point, the premise here suggests it is the journey of a monster, an origin story. Yes, it may present itself at least with the trappings of a superhuman origin story. But particularly with the leanings of like a Frankenstein origin. Yeah, Frankenstein's a very good one because some of your motivations are, since it was a virus that created you, you're very much against much of the virus that's out there mutating people. But it's a different virus. You can spin that two ways. Either A, the, the, the remnants of your human humanity are still there and you don't want to see people die, or B, that virus out there is as much a threat to you as it is to everyone else. You could argue in that case that if you are the virus A, virus B being a biological rival to you predisposes you mm -hmm. to a moral structure where it is the wrong one. It is the villain in your narrative, in your yes. experience of the world. It's a question of which one of those comes first, then, whether you look at this thing as a biological rival to you and say, this needs to be eliminated because it is wrong? Or well, is... well, structurally, the way it starts okay. out is, at the beginning, you do not realize that you are a monster. Actually, you don't even have the visible because powers. Because you look human. You look human. Okay. You woke up on in a slab in the morgue. But other than that, you're the person you find family members. You don't have most of your memories. And as you're piecing together your memories, you accidentally release the rest of the virus. Sure. And this, of course, you have to regain your memories by eating people who have portions of those. Yeah, not of your memories, but you're piecing together what happened. Who have memories of you and the so, events. So basically okay. what happens is you eat people and you piece together a lot of this web of intrigue that was causing this whole problem. As it happens, as some people, as you pick up certain bits of information, you recall some of your own memories. I see. Basically, you complete, the, you complete those previously broken neural networks. Essentially. Um, and... And so this is a very good setup. And as a journey of a monster goes, it's great when the game's not getting in its own way. I very much enjoyed it. There were some gameplay problems, which aren't really an issue for this show. And then there were some narrative problems, which are. So when you say the game got in its own way, what is the divide here? Okay. So again, I keep it took me a while to figure out the, the right word for what I'm talking about. Because I kept saying, you got the great, this great premise, and you've got these interesting story beats. But the game keeps stuttering on its way from getting to, from the first to the second. And the term I came up with for describing what was going on and where the game was lacking is infrastructure. The premise was great. The beats were great. But the premise led to a different set of beats than the ones they wanted to get to. In other words, there were things they wanted to tell in the story, moments they wanted to occur. Mm -hmm. But the inevitability arising out of this premise 
took an entirely different direction. Well, exactly. Well, let me let me give you an example. Uh, uh, and this example will become even more interesting as we go down because it, it sets up some, some divides. Like I said, it's sort of a game where you get to play John Carpenter's The Thing. Oh, yeah, the, the setup is different. But you are this mutant creature, this mutant shape-shifting creature that can take over people's identities, consume them, so that there's nothing left, but you're still wearing their their body, as it were, sure. or their their form. It's John Carpenter's The Thing. With so, a little bit of imposter syndrome. Here's the problem. Problem number one, John Carpenter's The Thing is on loose in New York City, and the military is trying to bring it down with bullets. And missiles, yes. But the, reasonable. But it's like, no, bullets, that's not going to bring down The Thing, right? That's problem number one. Problem number well, two is... Has it been established prior to this moment when the military brings its full force to bear that bullets don't hurt you, the monster? Yes. How? Because over the course of the game, you find out that uh, the first time there was an outbreak of anything like this sure. was in the 60s. Okay. So they've had 50 years to pre- prepare, and they actually say that on several occasions, that they had 50 years to prepare. Secondly, okay. after the first couple of times... You'd think they'd realize that bullets didn't stop you. But the worst part is this. The second problem is this. Again, your John Carpenter's the thing. Sometimes bullets do stop you. Not always. Not even narratively. But if you run out of health, you just heal over and die. These but are that's, the same bullets that previously did not. Well, the, these are the same bullets that you can... Here's the thing. You know, they're, they're not full bottom. They're not a magic silver bullet. Right. Okay. There's even a moment in the story where you deliberately let someone shoot you through the brain so that they don't realize that you're a monster because you're going to you're going to you're going to get up a couple of a minute later. OK, so the bullets damage your physical form, but they don't do but it. But not in any serious way. And sure. that's the problem. Now, this would be a less pronounced thing in a book because this is the needs of a video game where a health bar is really important. Sure. But the thing is, there are other ways of doing it. You could have used fire. You could. They actually do at one point use chemicals. But that doesn't start happening until more than halfway through the story. Now, is this is this idea that bullets don't hurt you until they've passed, until you've reduced, you've lowered a certain Essentially, you, yeah. As, as, is that to drive you toward as a monster consuming things to replenish yourself? Oh, so from a game structure where the game is forcing the, the narrative of the story, it's a great mechanic, but it doesn't match the premises. The premises are that you are a shape-shifting monster that in general you can easily heal any amount of damage that you're the John Carpenter. Again, you're John Carpenter's this the thing. Bullets goes, don't harm the thing. They temporarily inconvenience it, but they can't kill it. Right. It doesn't feel to you in the gameplay like the death is the inconvenience so much as it is the failure of... Right. So it's... But my but, but the point here is that... Critical existence failure. These are... So the premise suggests one thing, that bullets should be completely innocuous. Well, not it's, they should be an inconvenience, but they should not be lethal to you. Sure. Right? They should be able to slow you down. But the gameplay demands that they that you be able to die and instead of writing it in a way why the risk. Right. So, so the, instead of writing it in a way that the military would have the weapons to beat you, sure. They instead have to do, they instead just have to say, oh, well, the regular bullets can do it, even though they can't, and it's even established that they can't. And that's what I mean. There's no road to get from A to B. And when they do finally introduce weapons that can, like this one chemical, it's way later in the game than it should be narratively, because again, they've had 50 years to repair this thing. When, why didn't they bring it out immediately? Why would the military, particularly if the military is keyed into what you are from the beginning, not have brought that resource as the, if not, right. if nothing else, the final measure. And one of the memories you can find basically says they're having problems making enough of the substance, but that's enough to coat the city in a cloud of it. As far as just having it in every base already, or just having people with backpacks that can spray you with it, that should have been on the ground immediately. Do you think this is an issue particular to the video game genre? No, okay. I, I, I don't. Uh, this was just what made me look for that term, infrastructure. Okay. And, and and I guess to define it, I'm basically saying when you've got these moments where there are no roads to get from the point you started at to the point you want to get to, and you have to clutch it. And, and that's the point. It's not a failure of your premise. It's not a failure of your beat. It's a failure of the two to connect. Somewhere in the middle. Right. Somewhere they don't meet. The locations are there. You don't have the roads to get there. Uh, and that's why I called it infrastructure. 
And I, I spent some time thinking about it because, again, the game doesn't really fall apart on the, the premise or even the beats. Uh, there are some times where they fail to give you the information you needed, but that's or a different story. they don't story. hit enough. If an, is there ever a point in the story where your monstrosity or the horrors you inflict upon others have an emotional toll on the character or provide you with the possibility for it? Less that, but I Because, th- spoiler here, for those of you who haven't played Prototype yet and wish to plug your ears, do so now. As you've explained it to me, one of the major revelations is that you, Alex Mercer, are not the Alex Mercer who right. was Right, Alex affected. Mercer died. You, you, are not, you are not the original person. You are essentially a virus slash some kind of biological entity wearing its skin. Which should lead to some interesting narrative implications. If you've been pursuing a narrative, you as the character were, this is a redemption arc. You've done something wrong. You're trying to repair the damage done. Yeah, this one I don't consider to be an infrastructure problem. I consider this one to be a cut for time problem. Okay, because to me, then says if you hit that moment of going through and realize, if you hit that moment of realizing, oh, I'm not the one who committed this act. Mm -hmm. I'm the result of it. Am I still responsible for the consequences? I actually thought the one line that they they really had the time for was really cool. And it's it's said better than I could say it, where he's like, yeah, I'm not Alex Mercer. Alex Mercer died. He died doing something horrible that I have to live with the consequences of. And I'm not responsible for it. And yet I am because A, I exist because it happened, and B, because I still have all the well, memories. And I think this brings an interesting thing, and this may be something you can you can tell me whether this comes to full bear at the end of the narrative. There's a big argument in artificial intelligence and alien arguments and the like as to whether or not anything sentient outside or sapient outside of us would believe and think like we do. So, for instance, if this viral existence comes into a form of life that can mimic our own and communicate with us, it seems fascinating to me that it would so quickly then adapt the psychological and philosophical trappings. I think ultimately the reason is because it, you think about it, it's a contextual issue. You wake up on a slab, you have no memories, but you have an identity. Okay. And you start tracing down the, for lack of better terms, the beats of that identity. So in a what sense, you- by the time it realizes it's not human, too much of what makes it human has already been imprinted. Exactly. It's it's been trying to think like Alex for so long that that's its default state. In a sense, even though it's not Alex, it still believes it is a person. Right. And because it didn't know that Alex had made this horrible, horrible choice to do something Which terrible. Which revelations comes first? One, that it's a virus, or two, that Alex Mercer is the cause? They come out almost the exact same moment. Did they, that bother you or not? No, because because the thing that made it realize it when it finally happened was when it finally had the memory of, and put together the memory of Alice, Alex smashing the vial of the virus in the middle of Penn Station. That's what made it realize both that Alex released the virus and that Alex died. Does the way you navigate through the story change significantly to reflect this? This is, again, a failing, this is a failing of gameplay. So I guess you could also call this infrastructure, but it's infrastructure that's very much a, a game well, part story. Of the, part of the uniqueness of the video game genre is the belief or the idea that the interactive components, however much of the game that constitutes, mm-hmm. tell you this, reinforce or reify the story you're experiencing. A lot of the backstory and some of the current story is told when you consume certain people and you gain their memories and you get a vision. Sometimes this is used very well. These, so, of course, have giant beacons on top of their heads. You will get a beacon knowing where to find them. That is true. <laughs> the problem is they don't happen often enough. Okay. So you either spend a lot of time outside of the story tracking down these people, not really clear where you're going with them. For a lot of things that are interesting but aren't that relevant, and a few things that are really relevant and tell you a lot. Which you won't know until you've found them. Which you won't know until you've found them. Now, there are some times where the game balances this very well and puts now, them in your path right before choice, you need because them. Because it seems deliberate, did that choice affect your sense of pacing in the narrative? Yes and no. There are two or three beats that I realized because they were so relevant to exactly sure. what was about to happen that I realized the game must have been programmed to put them right in your path. Not, not to, because it's an open world game, not just to force you down a path where you'll meet them, but to spawn them right around where you are so there's there's a good chance okay, that you'll see them. They're not, it's not a matter of 
you have to be here for this to happen. It's at this point. Right. This will occur near you. So like moments where you're about to be betrayed by someone you trusted or one that actually does a pretty good job of explaining something that just happened to you and how they did it. Okay. Um, those are both put in your path. However, there's a really cool revelation that if you track down almost everybody, you'll get. And that one can affect the context that you see what happens at the very end of the game at. If you don't haven't seen them, it seems to come out of nowhere. It's like, what what the hell? And then if you track down the memories afterwards, it'll be like, oh, wow, that actually makes more sense than I thought. Okay. And when I when I finally got back to seeing it, so it's a very cool system, but it, it no, fails it's, a little it's bit. It's a memory recollection mechanic. Mm. There's a set of optional, for lack of a better word, side quests, which is usually a common, common nomenclature for the stuff yeah. you don't have to do to happen to make the game and the story happen. And it's also, a, another one would be collectibles. Sure. But the same idea being, if you're truly obsessive about finding and discovering everything, you can do that. In this particular instance, I feel like it was somewhat of a frustration. Well, yeah, you can understand narratively them wanting to leave that moment of discovery up to you. Yeah, here's the problem. Honest whether you pursued it until when you found it. I'd say the idea worked great, except that there are a lot of these memories and too many of them aren't that relevant. They're somewhat okay, cool. I guess the better question then is... How many of the optional ones were, in your mind, truly vital to giving depth and complexity to the story? The problem was that most of the ones that really gave it that depth, that's actually kind of cool, it happened at the very end. You won't find them until you found a lot of the other ones, because yeah. it's it's structured. There's effectively a gatekeeping mechanic to this. It's sort of. And there aren't, it, like, these people just did not occur often enough to... And to give me a really good chance of having gotten to that point. Okay. So what this but, game, but again, that's a, again, I, yes, infrastructural, but that's a gameplay issue. Yes and no, because part of what the infrastructure in a in a storytelling game, whether we're talking tabletop or in this place, this case, video gaming, and actually, I think this boils over into book two. You have your premise, what mm. the story is going to be about. You have the conclusion, where it ends up taking you. You have the beats, what happens along the way. Mm -hmm. But the pacing, the pacing, and the and the ways that you can get to those beats. Right, and those are a matter of playing with expectation. And, and pacing, I would say, if you want an example, memory mechanic was an example of the gameplay's method of pacing getting in the way. But there was another issue with the pacing that is a, a very good story way of putting it, which is, it's not just that it was gatekept behind this memory thing. It's that there are moments where there, there's information that's not conveyed that should that really needed to be earlier on in the story. To give you that sense of urgency or purpose. Right. Okay. There are moments where, like, what was an important storyline for a while completely trails off. Here's one for you. The first part of the game is very much about you trying to find who you are. And there's so this... Act one. I was going to divide it into two parts. Sure. So the, first half, fine. And so you, you connect with your sister... And you have to protect her to make sure that she doesn't get taken by the military, et cetera, et cetera. There's some tension as she doesn't know what to make of you and the fact that you're becoming increasingly monstrous. And then she gets kidnapped by a lot of these other infected and you have to try to stop her and I mean, to, to save her. And that's great. And then the second half is very much, a, okay, having resolved that, you, have, you seem to have found one ally who keeps contacting you. Mm-hmm. And helping you destroy the rest of the virus, which is, you know, something you want to do. And you're at odds with the military and all that and helps you take down the military that's planning on destroying everything. And these two halves don't meet very easily. They're like they're like two sep completely separate sections of the game. And nothing says that more than by the fact that the last narrative beat that your sister plays any role in is you just saved her from the infected. You leave her in the care of this one doctor. She's in a comatose state. If there is any follow-up on that, I've never seen it. You never hear about that again. The last you hear of anything, she's wow. in a comatose state. Not even in the endgame cutscenes. Right. Not and, in the end credits. And I don't remember why you started picking up these random dead drop cell phones to hear from this guy either. It's like it was never established. These two game sections don't meet at all. To your point, in your analogy of the roadmap, the pacing is severely affected, is deeply affected by the path you take through the beats. And in this case, it felt like to you, we're going this way, we're going this one way, we're going to hit the story here. It actually felt more than that. Okay. It felt like all of a sudden the game is forcing me to be at a beat 
And I don't know how I got there because there wasn't a road. In other words, GPS is saying, great, you got to here, but now you need to be on the other side of the map. It's like one of those, yeah, not just you need to be on the other side of the map. No, it's more like along the lines of the GPS just said, you have arrived at your destination. And I'm like, how? Last I know, you were telling me there was no way there. And yet I'm here. And that's that's what I'm there talking. There were several leaps of or of thought right. of narrative taken. The beat happened, you but it didn't there. make sense for the beat to happen. Well, this I think is something similar in other stories where you have the off-screen beats. Right. And what happens that you don't see, and some of that, a lot of that can be assumed. But when the game is so centered around you discovering things, and especially you doing things, when you're doing this stuff and you don't know why you're doing this stuff, or even when stuff's happening or not happening. And you can't tell why it's happening or why it's not happening. There's a problem. Even if the road was there, if you didn't see it, it should have been on your mind that that, that there doesn't seem to be the pathway. Okay, so we've got the issue of agency. We've got pacing and how that affects it. We have the premise and the destination. Actually, here's a really good example. So in this game... You have this infection loose in New York City, and you have the military that's quarantined off the city. No one gets across the bridges, and there's essentially a state of martial law. But for some reason, New Yorkers, being New Yorkers, are walking around without a care in the world like it's a regular day. Okay, now, I've been in New York City shortly after 9-11. To a certain extent, that is true. Okay, but here's the However, Here, Here's the thing. If on one block... There are infected zombies attacking everyone in sight and tearing them to shreds. And three blocks over, people are going about their shopping? That is inaccurate, because that is not reflective of human nature. Even after 9-11 and many years after, I remember it took, I forget how long exactly, but I remember it was maybe five or six years, I was in Times Square and I went, oh, it's finally back to being normal. Mm -hmm. I couldn't tell you the density necessary for me to call it normal, you know, in terms of people per square foot, but that moment where it again matched my memory, my childhood memories of Times Square being, this is regular for this place. Because for a long time, the emotional and psychological fallout, in addition to the physical, exactly. of what had happened there, kept people away from it. Exactly. Now, I just started playing through the second game. They made one change that makes that people wandering around make so much more sense. They're downtrodden. They're bedraggled. They're, they do, the whole place that they're in, this is taking place years later in the remnants in New York City, looks like it's essentially, you know, they're eking out an existence. Standard post-apocalyptic trip. Then if there are monsters running around, well, life has to go on. What else are you going to do? There's a very... Well, that's just raccoons in the trash. Exactly. It's a very different thing. It's not this weird, hey, three blocks, oh, like we've gotten used to the idea that this is life now. Sure. But that's a... I think this touches upon... The idea of cohesiveness, of how all of these components fit together. Again, infrastructure, it's one of those roads. Because you've laid down the groundwork for people to be behaving this way, it makes sense that people are behaving this way. The expectation is in place that this is normal now. And now you can get to that beat of, hey, there are random civilians wandering around, even as there's all this shit going on around them, because they don't have a choice. Whereas Alex Mercer rampaging during martial law and trying to avoid the billion civilians who are cognitively ignorant of this or blissfully in great deal of denial and the military that's letting them Blindly because is. one of the first things that would happen in martial law, a mar- a quarantine and martial law would be locking everyone down in place so they didn't continue to get infected. Mm-hmm. And again, after 9-11, you can walk into the city and you can, if you've lived there before, see the difference in number of both plainclothes and visible security. Yes. Forces. That's not even talking about the ones who are subtly placed. Mm -hmm. That's just the, we are here to show you that this is secure. And you didn't get used to it immediately. No. It took me a while to expect a certain number of dogs and machine guns and other things to Mm. see that as, oh, this is just the city now. And you compare and contrast to, say, a Grand Theft Auto V, where you've got military, like if you get the, the siren alarms up and up, you've got the military rampaging through the city, you know, trying to stop you. You've got guns blazing everywhere and people are going about their normal lives. What's the difference? Grand Theft Auto V is very clearly a satire. Everything is ramped up as if, you know, it, the, the, the excesses of humanity are ramped up. This is the idea of the fact that people can be so blasé about violence and 
And so, of course, it makes sense that you can do that because it's a satire. It's supposed to be. Prototype isn't trying to say anything about, as far as I can tell, isn't trying to say anything about humanity that they they can they can ignore the fact that the city's coming down around their ears. It just wanted there to be civilians and realized it wrote itself into a corner. Again, Infamous, the other one that took place in New York City, did it better because in the wake of this, with a lot of power out, yeah, people are wandering around, but there's this very real sense of, shit, what are we going to do? We're trapped here in this city, and we've got to try to survive somehow. And they don't look like they're happy. They don't look. Again, when we had the massive brownouts in the area, the first thing people did after an hour or two was abandon their cars and walk to wherever they needed to be. Mm Mm-hmm. And then shortly after that, by the evening, have massive cookouts because their food was spoiled. Thank you. You actually just hit one of the elements that, that was dry, was making me crazy. It's not the fact that there were people everywhere, although it was the fact that they were <laughs> there wandering. There were a lot of cars. There was a ton of cars just driving around like nothing's happened. You know, the military is going to control those roads. There's no reason for them to be letting potential obstacles in the way of their transport around the city exist. But all of this shows just how complex building of a full story is because you have what seemed like at the initial step very basic things Mm -hmm. and they should be you should start simple because it is easy as you've elucidated to stumble into far too many complications and i think that's what happened with prototype they kept ramping up rather than dealing with the consequences the first time the military, almost immediately, there are military bases in the city and they're, they're cordoning off areas. And it's like, that should have a fundamental, just that happening. You don't even have to know the why. But if you did know the why, that there's some sort of disease going on, that would make it even more pronounced. That this, the entire city would be... Having a CDC tent with military bases surrounding it would immediately change the entire flow of the city. Exactly. What you'd actually see, uh, actually, that's this is a completely different issue because this isn't an infrastructure one. This is just a, hey, how do you add character to what you're trying to do? Sure. The One of the parts they got very wrong about New York City is the various areas of the city didn't have a very, they didn't, at least to me, seem to have a lot of character. They weren't distinctive. Yeah, I'm like, I mean, I guess you could basically, like, the parts that had skyscrapers were different. But I mean, I didn't notice that much difference. Or that that much could just character. as easily be Toronto. The thing is that most people who are playing the game aren't going to be familiar with the way New York City is. And I'm guessing the game developers were like, we don't have to try that hard because no one's going to be expecting again, it. I, I had the same problem with uh, Prototype. I feel like that's a lost opportunity in the sense that if you're, it's, I guess it becomes a question of where the beach should and shouldn't be, which beats you touch upon. If this type of story is occurring in this part of the world, how does that affect the particulars of that? part of the world. I guarantee you there'd be parts of the city that would band together and cordon off their own area and not let outsiders in. Sure. That's just something that would happen in New York City. It's something that would happen in most places. It's just that in New York City, you can even guess which areas would do it. In all likelihood, I think the danger of any massive production, this goes for movies, this goes for big Mm -hmm. budget television shows, for video games, There's so much you could do. There's so much you could tell. And I say this in big budget, but honestly, there's nothing bigger budget than your own imagination. And I've worked with enough writers and even folks teaching for essays and the like who feel the opportunity for their minds to wander in infinite places. And it's good. It is good to let your imagination roam through the various excesses needed to find where the story actually is. But there does come a point where you have to step back and prune a little. You have to trim. And I'll give you an example I ran into. Okay. So as I think I've touched upon the podcast, I started writing what was essentially short stories about 10, 11, 12 years ago. Not with any, at that point, idea that I'd be setting out to do books or series or an in-depth epic of any kind. When it finally came to me that as one of my friends, who I hope to have on the show, eventually said, this isn't a book, this is a series. However many books it is, maybe one, two, three, but let this breathe. Take what you think is an act of a book and let that be the story because too many things are occurring here. In other words, there were too many beats and not enough room for the story to have, in terms of pacing, a place for the reader to sit back and go, oh, okay, now I can gather and understand and comprehend Mm. and move on. Somewhere about five or six years ago, I eventually came upon what would be three books of story. And I laid out the chapters to them, the essential beats to them, over time drafted them. But something interesting emerged. 
in this second book, after Adam, the older of the narrators, and parts ways from Connor, having left Connor with his family, Sophie and his son Jaden, I was chewing over at that point what in the terms of what in the past timeline, which is the one Adam narrates, should be told here. At that point, in that version of the series, we hadn't seen much of his childhood, of his time living with the Abba Joseph and his mother Lila, of that small town they grew up in, or of his many years wandering on his own in the people, the adoptive or foster families he tried to live with to find a new home before he ended up working in the military. And so a good portion of that arc leading up to when he does finally join the army and work for their cause occurred in book two. This included the moment that forced him to leave his home initially. And I had, even in book one, the prologue, some of that was touched upon, but the difficulty I didn't realize then, I do now, is that it's hard to empathize with someone who presents himself as capable and self-aware and stubborn and in some ways monstrous in his actions, as Adam is, without any context as to why, as to how he has reached this point or how he's become this person. It's easy to lose your ability as a reader to to identify with that, Mm -hmm. to not empathize, to go, okay, you know what? He's probably the villain here. Yes, he's making everything happen narratively, but his choices are awful quite often. It's tough. I mean, we tout certain books like L'Etranger as great pieces of literature, and in some ways they are, but Merceau is a monster. There's very little reason to care for him, to empathize with what he's doing or why or not doing. And that is the point of the book. The point of the book is to test your ability as a human being to identify and connect with someone who doesn't give a shit about you. Roland the Gilead is was infamously such a horrible character not horrible of written but like su- he's such an amoral character in the uh and sometimes monstrous character in the first uh of the the dark tower series that stephen king himself at one point put away the draft and was like what am i writing <laughs> yes and as i've said before i think both off recording and to you i am not i am perturbed by some of the stuff that emerges out of the actions and decisions my characters have but I'm following who they are and what they do and why. The thing is, I know them well. I have lived mm-hmm. with them for many years. They reside in my head and they're quite vocal. And they insist that their stories be told. But you have to share that with the audience. And to not see this journey Adam takes from this belligerent, stubborn punk of a teenager who thinks he is far more capable than he is, who needs to rely on people, to not show that fragility, that frailty mm-hmm. of a deeply vulnerable, injured scarred human being trying to make sense of who he is and why and why so much of the forces that still exist in the world either despise him or wish to rid themselves of him and to find just a home in that to not at first even seek a solution to what he's suffered in the past to find his little garden of Eden or whatever but just a place to live in to not show that struggle in book one in the introduction mm-hmm. to him where you first meet him and see him as the more capable competent amoral in many ways adult the one who is willing to commit atrocities or do things to survive that seem awful for many reasons. That's a mistake. Well, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting because we were talking about pathways. The prototype one was a path, no clear pathway between the premises and the beats. You've got a different one because there's a very clear pathway between premises and the beats, but the premises are all in your head. So while there's no, there is a clear pathway, there's no clear pathway from those to your viewer. Those essential beats, the ones that drive the viewer to empathy mm-hmm. or present them with the opportunity to empathize right. didn't occur when they needed to. So it's actually a three-way conversation. It's not just where you were to where you're going, but also the third point that you need is who's reading. You need the path from your beginning to your actions mm-hmm. and the and and to your viewer, the right. reader. The beats affect not just the way you go about through the story, they affect the pacing of it as well. Because it was interesting, because when I came up with this scenario, I was like, all right, we've, we've had conversations about your writing style sure. earlier, and about mine when I'm doing comedy, which it's been a while, but, you know, your path was always, here are the characters, the story is essentially the way the characters are growing. It's going to tell you how it's going to go. Right. And in that sense, it's like, well, how are you not going to have the infrastructure if you're following those paths? How are you not, How are you going to have that problem? Whereas my path was always, okay, I've got this set up. This is great. I've got these beats. 
I, they're going to be comic gold, but I need to make sure I can bring them around mm-hmm. and I need to make sure I can do so in an entertaining way. Obviously, writing comedy is in, in many ways a very different scenario. In, in some ways, it's the same. So I'm like, okay, this is a very, very clear problem with my writing style. But I was like, is this something that was a problem with your writing style? And I think you've just identified it's not in the same way, but there is still another, there's a third axis. In a sense that those beats initially occurred and made sense in the infrastructure of the time. Mm -hmm. That Oh, yes, this is all one book. In the second act, in the part where the two narrators are separated, what we believe, what seems permanently, one is left with the family to keep take care of the other is going off to do what he thinks is right. And now is an opportunity to deeply, to, to more distinctly delve into why did Adam leave his home when he did? How did he lose the family that he did then? Who does he live with and what happened in those moments? It is a very different scenario, isn't it? A trilogy versus a single book. A single yes. book, you've got something like Pride and Prejudice, where uh, Mr. Darcy, in the entire first act, you are supposed to despise him. You're not supposed to empathize with him at all. And it's only in the second act, which in a trilogy would be the second book, that you start seeing those things of why you'd empathize. So in this case, on the one hand, I love the idea, even though I don't work particularly with the hero versus villain paradigm, of having two narrators, one of whom seems the more villainous of them, in terms of actions and beliefs and willingness to commit things, commit atrocities or the awful thing, and the other's reaction to that, it'd be easy to portray one as the villain, but also interesting to then later in the second act of the book, the omnibus, go into what is driving this man to do it. Well, I think your pro- the problem you're running into is it's, it's not about whether you want to see them as the heroes or the villains, because you don't that, care. You know, that's the reader's choice. Exactly. But if you specifically don't want the reader to go down a certain path, especially if that going down that path is going to interfere with their ability to enjoy or connect with what you're going to do next. You have to address that. It doesn't matter that that's not what you were going for. So I found myself when I was having now discovered the ending, I'm jumping a beat here as an example, the big argument for me and why why this took so long, I wanted it to be a book because I felt that whole comprehensive journey, if it was read together, would work. By the same token, it was a monster to write. So then I gradually migrated to the idea of three books, but then encountered the, okay, the beats don't happen when they need to. The deciding point for me, and I've told you this, was when I looked down and said, okay, the reason I don't believe it can be three books is that I don't have a genuine ending to book one. I don't know what the conclusion is to this premise that feels both natural and inevitable, but also finite. That leaves you at a point of, okay, this is done. Here's where it goes next, but this is done. Because you want it to be a cliffhanger if you're going to have it in three books. There has to be suspense. But it's not... So what is the inevitable conclusion of this first arc of this first narrative? Going back to Pride and Prejudice, I believe it's the main character... The end of Act 1, which if you were to expand this into a trilogy, would be the end of the first book, would be her decision that she never doesn't want to have a thing to do with Mr. Darcy ever. Ever, ever. And... Ultimately, that's a very strange thing to end that book on. Leaves you wondering, where is this going to go next, and how can this be changed? Or As how a will first act, it's, it's a great cliffhanger for a first act, but again, the first book in a trilogy is not well, the first act of a story. Right, and given that the premise is ostensibly in Pride and Prejudice, a romance mm-hmm. of sorts, how does she go from despising the man to, to loving him in some sense? Well, what are the three acts? The first one is essentially it's the establishing sure. the current state of affairs. And this is going off the traditional Aristotelian dramatic work. Right. Yeah. And the second one is disrupting the current state of affairs and driving it towards a ledge. And the third one is driving more towards a ledge and then wrapping it up. Right. And this, Re- is resolution. No means, this is by no means a standard deviation bell curve. It doesn't mean right. a given amount of time. No, when you're dramatically speaking in terms of acts, it's not a set amount of time or or word count that goes into them. It's a, here's what you're doing. Well, to your point earlier, it's where do the beats go in terms of trajectory? Yeah. And where does that shift occur in the the narrative? Very often, act two, the characters are not in control of, nowhere near control of the situation. Whereas in the third act, even as things are driving towards a cliff, Mm -hmm. the characters are becoming much more proactive. I'll give you an example of, where in having discovered the true ending of the first book and gone, oh, why did I not acknowledge this? Two reasons. I'll get into one now. The other I'll save for later. One, I didn't accept for a long time that the story should have fairy tale like elements to it. That there should just be a certain amount of, for lack of a better term, 
not magical thinking, but magical realism that if these things can happen, they can happen. And if those can happen, so can many other things. They're just truths of the world. What you wanted a world, wanted was a world where people talked about the mythic, but you didn't want to follow through as it driving the story. No, because that didn't feel like the thing telling the characters are driving the story. If the mythic occurs, it's because the world itself allows it, it, for it. But of course, that leads you to a world where dragons clearly exist, but they're over there not bothering anybody. So in that sense, who's the dragon in the story? In terms of narrative, it's Adam. Mm-hmm. He's the monster. He's the thing that shouldn't exist anymore. But like we were talking about a prototype, just because he's the monster doesn't mean he's not a protagonist. And it doesn't mean that he's monstrous in right. entirety. Or so, it can mean he's monstrous in nature but it doesn't have to be monstrous in in character and that's part of what he struggles with part of i'll get to a couple beats here but one that emerged naturally having found this new this ending to book one and gone okay it doesn't have to be an omnibus because here's this conclusion i've told you some of this it's a good enough one that i strongly suggest you not give it away i, yeah, I don't want to tell the reader some of it but i'll get to what i can tell them in a moment the thing that happened i was writing part of the the road trip journey and God, this I could do. I probably will do this in a moment. But and readers, if you've ever wondered how I think, this is how and this is why I record because trying to write this down while I'm saying it, mm. insanity. But here we go. It was Adam Orlando, who's one of the other soldiers, and Connor driving down after having after Orlando and Connor picked up Adam from this campsite, driving back down to the military base. And so initially it was one chapter, but pacing again, let that road trip be a journey. What happens along the way back down? And as they reach the city of where the military is through in his headquarters currently, there are a number of refugees on this massive bridge. Adam's the point of view character. What does he see of the refugees? Obviously, it's people displaced with whatever belongings they could take. That's not unique. That is not a thing. That's just scaffolding. That's mm-hmm. me saying, oh, look, a bridge full of refugees. The world is more awful. Yeah, that, that's not less establishing anything about Adam and more giving your readers right. a framework to view what's about to happen. In. But what would Adam see in this moment? What of this is relevant or meaningful to him? And I'm walking on the trail, and the phrase that comes to my mind is blankets. That's the first thing I stole. Because he sees these people displaced from their homes, and the stoves they've assembled, the furniture they've tried to make out of whatever ramshackle stuff they could acquire, and it pulls him back to when he was 11 and 12 years old, wandering through the wilderness, pillaging things from local villages, stealing blankets, loaves of bread, feeling bad about it and trying to repair fences, getting into fights with house cats, getting stabbed a couple of times. That narrative of him stumbling through this village after village in the dead of winter and eventually bleeding and caught and starving, falling asleep in a pile of snow and waking up to find his boots were stolen. That the preyed upon will prey upon, will prey upon, will prey upon. And that he can survive this, he's learning, but it still feels awful. And he's pulled out of the snow by these people who have no home. They're travelers. They take him in and they feed him. And they're giving him all this for nothing. And he doesn't know what to make of that. That's what he sees in this moment of these refugees demanding or begging to be led into the city. Dual memory of the best and worst in humanity. And what does he do as a consequence of this? When he gets to the gatekeeper, the actual military representative here who's checking off who can come in and who cannot, how much do we have to feed? Who can we let in today? Who's too sick to let in? Who has to be quarantined? He takes some of the resources they've acquired from digging at this old battle site of the previous wars, metals and minerals that are hard to find now, which can be pawned off for a significant amount of currency from Orlando, and uses that to pay the gatekeeper into hiring the able-bodied refugees to go mine more of it. Because he can't leave them here. He can't leave this situation unchanged. That's an interesting dual thing that he, ha- that he has to deal with it. But again, you just established that when he was picked up by people who just gave him stuff, he couldn't, he couldn't fathom why. And apparently, in some way, he still has a problem with that. He can't just give. He has to make the system work. He can't just hand out. He has to give it as a form of a job. And maybe that's character-wise what they needed, too. Or maybe it's just the fact that he couldn't put himself in the same position as the people who took him in, even if he valued what they did. Right. And part of that goes back to some of his own formative experiences in childhood. His father, as I've told you before, famously tried to beat the worst of it out of him. Not this behavior, but the things his father wanted to rid from him. Knowing this couldn't work, but still feeling powerless to do otherwise. I have, I swear, I have heard... Not the exact same idea, but that uh, that idea of I have to discipline 
even though I know it won't work because what other choice is there? Joseph knows he can't save his family. His wife has told him this. If he does nothing to do that, though, if he does, if he tries nothing, to him it means he doesn't love them. It says, so weird as it sounds, this abusiveness toward his own child is his last desperate attempt to somehow make the impossible happen. This can't work. This shouldn't work, but I'm angry and powerless and impotent and frustrated. Uh, I care, but I don't know what to do with that. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, this Adam growing up in a sense that the world, that what you want comes at a cost. And despite the fact that he's experienced, sometimes it doesn't happen that way. He can't think in those terms. It's hard for him to operate that way. Yeah. Because again, he's lived on his own for so long. And in situations where another, another one that came later was a recollection of him talking to the Dom, this big, important religious figure who took him in. The Dom is chiding him because he offered Adam shoes. And Adam won't take them because it means he has to stay. It means this is home now. And he's afraid of what he'll do if he stays there. So if he accepts the shoes, if he accepts the gift freely given and acknowledges that this place is his now. In other words, if a gift freely given has a cost that he's not willing to pay, so better to get to tell them what the other cost is so that it's not. It doesn't come with it doesn't come with the cost of no cost. As a 13 year old, he couldn't articulate that. He could experience it. He could free. He could Most feel people it. who can't articulate it at 13, it sounds like he still has problems articulating that, you know, much later. But again, this was a scene that didn't occur in the first book initially until the narrative demanded that it be there. These moments kept cropping up because it was the, they were where that humanity, where, yes, he is monstrous, but who is the child that became the monster? What makes him the monster? Is it his origins? Is it his actions? And how much of that is him struggling against, trying to define or work against that? Actually, amusingly, as much as you don't want to put the, the, the story in terms of heroes and villains, you keep trying to put him into, in the role of the monster. But actually, it's sounding like he fits the role of the monster as little as he fits the role of hero or villain. It's because just that originally you wrote him so you didn't find out about all of that stuff until later. So that idea of him cementing as the monster early happened in your head, too. Yes. Not to the extent that it would to everybody else. horrifying and intimidating to most of the other characters through the majority of their interactions. It's funny, and this is not actually meant in a complimentary way, and at the same time it is, because your style of writing is very different from his, but he actually comes across very much like an Ellie Modesta Jr. character. Very monstrous in his actions, and technically, over the course of the book, you can see why, not always consider it true. And uh, you're putting a lot more emphasis well, this, into why. This goes into... back into a conversation I think we had when Wonder Woman came out. One of the frustrations I believe you expressed to me is that she didn't feel like she had come from a bizarre and peculiar enough view of the world. That if she were truly that sheltered and removed from the world as it existed, her understanding of how things existed, how they worked, should be in some ways so particular and alien. Yes. It wasn't just the, oh, why can't women do this kind of thing? It was also a, why are you even going through this custom? Why am or why are you not going through this custom? Right. And in that sense, Adam is foreign to a lot of the world. For the first 10 or 11 years of his life, he only knew about it through what he read of his father's collections, the old groundskeeper who told him stories. Mm-hmm. And the other part, and this plays into the ending of the story of the first book somewhat, there was an earlier war. I had, at certain points, told bits and pieces of that, but with mostly those acting against the, the forces, the powers that be. These are the ones rebelling against. These are the ones making the change occur. And what is their bit and piece of the story here? And how does that inform the, the bigger narrative? Missing from that is those in power, whether they acknowledge it as such or those who weren't aware of the harm they were causing and how their life changed in that moment. Two of them, incidentally, being this king and prince of a small, remote part of the Northern Kingdoms, which I think in the mapping episode we touched upon briefly. Mm-hmm. And that came to me in a dream, which I'll eventually talk about on the show later on, because mm-hmm. it was a moment of... Keeping how do you, dream journals. <laughs> one keeping dream journals at war. How do you know when something belongs and when it doesn't? And sometimes you don't. Sometimes you have an experience that goes, this is here, this is present, this beat should occur. But it doesn't fit into the fucking map anywhere. I can put this in terms uh, from comedy, comedy writing class. I believe it was he was the, the the teacher was talking about the Arsenio Hall show. Sure, I think it was that one. And he said it's it was a very rare experience because the talent they had in that room, writing and acting or uh, performing, I should say, was amazing. 
And it was one of those situations where they were throwing out so much good material, you could fill almost an entire another show with it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, it's at one at the same time, the greatest experience. Because ordinarily you're had like so often you're having to put in jokes you know are bad because you've got to fill time. Mm-hmm. And this was that there was never a situation like that. In fact, you were having to throw them out and in such numbers. But at the same time, it was terrible because you were having to throw them out and in such numbers. <laughs> and the thing is, and I, I remember this from when I wrote a comic too. There are times I had if, if something was so funny that I absolutely had to put it in, I would look for other ways of doing the same joke if I could. In a but, similar fashion, when this dream occurred, this dynamic of this king and this prince and this father-son relationship in the moment emerged of this overly protective father seeing his teenage son still as the child, I looked and went, this doesn't fit into the story, but that dynamic does, that relationship does, mm-hmm. and that's Adam and his father, Joseph. Bring this around to the, the game that you run, the, the Academy sure. World game that you run. I wonder if that's not why you've made the timeline and the narrative of this world so hazy. It's because you don't want to, to have, you, when you have ideas, first off, it's a collaborative storytelling thing. So you have to be accommodating <laughs> of ideas that you Please. didn't originally intend. Yes, which is half the fun. Which is very much half the fun. But also it's like when you have a good idea, you don't want it to just be gone. You'd like just because it doesn't fit or because, you know, we've gone a different direction. In fact, this is one of the few times I've been in a role-playing game where we've ever done other stories in the same role-playing game. The prologue stories or the paralogues. Yeah. Many of which cannot possibly exist in the same world or couldn't if this world wasn't all wasn't so broken time-wise. Sure. Deliberately so. Look, you said from almost the first time, what's the quote on the gate? What remains of time? Time is held beyond here. Here. Meaning this world is separated from it yes. in some way. Not necessarily the most obvious way, because you have a tendency for very no, poetic you descriptions. Certain, you had a certain interpretation that led to I spent a very large chunk of the game, and my character spent a very large chunk of the game, seriously considering the idea that we were already in the world of the dead, yeah, and this life was on the other side. Interesting beats, such as Pablo's or Maximilian's famous, how do I get out of here, asked of death, and death giving him a knife. Mm-hmm. And then later on, Krillian inquiring of another informed individual, so are we actually the dead side of things? And the response of that individual being, do you want to find out? <laughs> we can try. And what that taught Corellian, by the way, was not that he was wrong, but that he wasn't willing to bet on that he was right. <laughs> there were certain questions he didn't need an answer to that badly. Right. I do remember to the uh, whole thing of uh, death going, giving him the knife. There was a Terry Pratchett moment that was very much like that. A character is worn out, betraggled, has just been put through the ringer, and is basically, you know, he's, he's meeting death. Death has two very great lines here. The first one being, you are very clearly having a near-death experience, which of course oh, means boo. I must be having a near-vimes experience. Oh, boo. Uh, that's a very Pratchett, isn't it? I agree. But the other one is, is that Vimes asking him, well, are you going to help? And Death going, of course. And Vimes sits there waiting for a minute and goes, when? When the pain becomes too much, when... When you grow too tired or too weary to continue on, I'm realizing right now this isn't what you meant. <laughs> <laughs> but you asked for help. <laughs> but this is the only, but this it's the only help death would give, yeah. and he and he's perfectly willing. That's to. all I have to give. Exactly, it's me. All and, I have is to give of myself. All I have is to give myself. One of myself, and that's one of the wonderful things Pratchett managed sure. to do is he managed to make death the main character, but not. He managed to find situations where death would do something other than that without having death sacrifice who he was. Sure. In other words, if death was going to not act like death, there had to be a reason. And even as he was doing so, Pratchett actually identified the, the, the tension in that. If death is going to not, not act like death, what is he going to act like? And so he would deliberately put him in situations where he had to choose, act like death or don't. Okay. And why would he choose? I, I think the strangest and one of the best moments is the entire concept of the, of the book Hogfather. Something's happened and death is trying to play the role of Santa Claus, which looks a lot like A Nightmare Before Christmas. But Certainly. it's not narratively. They're nothing, nothing like each other. Santa Claus is gone and death is very concerned about the consequences of that happening. And so there's the moment where he's right, presented using a natural order to things. So then what happens when death as Santa Claus is presented with the narrative of the matchstick girl? Okay. 
wood <laughs> left out in the snow, which side does he choose? What does he do? Okay. Because death would do one thing, and Santa Claus would, would do, do another. Would give the present of life, the gift of life. Mm-hmm. Or warmth, and, at least. And, and it's very interesting. It's, it's a very good book. for. It's less that death not acting like itself in that character, more of revealing a different side of death. Because again, death gives death, but what is his belief of the war, her belief of the world and how it functions? If there's a belief that everything has a role, the question becomes, does the role of the Hogfather of Santa supersede his own personal beliefs in this moment? That while, yes, he death would give an end in peace to this individual, mm. he is not acting as death in this moment. Exactly. And as the role of death, but he's still acting as the person who believes that this Anthropomorphic role, personification. Right, who believes that this role of Hogfather of Santa is necessary and essential. And I love the way that, and one of the reasons Terry Pratchett's death is so popular is he's very much, he is death. He values what he does. He, he doesn't just, this isn't some death that's like, this isn't like Neil Gaiman's death, who feels, or at least for a long part of her existence, felt cursed to do this thing that everybody hated sure. her for and she didn't particularly enjoy. This is death, the Grim Reaper, that is very much aware of how necessary what he does is. Here's the reason the scene of the King and the Prince, when I woke up that morning, I grabbed my recorder, my pencil and pen for an hour and a half. I tried to capture what I had just seen. I don't remember the particulars of the line, but basically they emerge from this state building. They go to approach the car, whatever cameras are flashing, et cetera, et cetera. And the Prince just wants to be done with it. He's 15 or 16. He's that annoyed state of existence as most teenagers are. And there's this explosion. Something happens. There's a disruption. It draws everyone's attention away. There's this mob of people running through. And the king tries to find his son. He tries to reach through them to grab him. The first time he does, he's knocked away. And when he reaches again, when he looks again, it's not the 16-year-old he sees, but the five-year-old, the thing he's trying to protect. And even in the dream, part of my mind is going, is that a different memory of a similar experience? (laughs) Or is this just how he sees the sun in the moment? That doesn't surprise me. Dreams are actually more open to that kind of in-the-moment interpretation. Even in the dream, my mind went, you know what? It doesn't matter. It's both. Let's move on. (laughs) Look, I've had a dream where where the thought process has literally gone, I am safe now. The bad thing that has happened elsewhere has never happened here. And the very next beat is the bad thing that once happened here is about to happen here again, even though I just established that it never happened here. So That's finally, dreams. Finally, the but king. that level of analysis. Oh, yeah. It's, dreams have a perfectly cohesive sense to themselves. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not. The king reaches through the crowd. Finally, he manages to barge, make his way past them, grabs onto his son. And it's this look of utter fright, of distraught, of loss, of fear, of what he had almost permanently lost hold of. And the son chides in this moment, as only a teenager could, and says, you're the king. You can't be like this. You have to bleed. You have to be not you. You have to be this, the role. Mm-hmm. And I forget the exact line, but the king's response is, you know, he's on his knees. He's crying. So his response is, then let them see. I'm not the king. I'm not the leader. I am no one in this moment but a man trying to be with his son who is not willing to accept that I still see him as a five-year-old in need of my protection. Mm. And I woke up at that moment. And when I don't know where this beat goes, those characters in the story don't exist until about three days later. I said, oh, well, you know, there is a potentially kingdom over here where they could be. But that dynamic, this father and the son, I only seen before in Adam and his father, Joseph's reactions. They're not Adam and Joseph, because again, this is many years previously, but I've been writing bits and pieces of their story since and how that weaves into things. And even as a parallel, as something to compare or juxtapose. And this is where, when I woke up, the moment came to me, as I'm writing this down, the question arose, who's telling this? Because in the dream, it was not simply as this is occurring, it was narrated. Let know I'm not the only person who has, for whom the narrator or the audience is a character in the dream. I've had that. And I'm going, who's telling this? Because it's not Joseph as the king, it's not Adam as the prince. But who is telling the story and to whom? I was always told that the first rule of interpreting any dream, whether you're interpreting it for meaning or you're interpreting it for story, is you are every character in the dream. Sure. And it hit me. Yes, that king and that prince, they were real. They existed sometime back, way when, whenever, around here, before the war. Fine, the last war, not the current war, because sometimes life is sad like that. 
and the last war is not the final. Mm. When is it ever, right? <laughs> exactly. It's Joseph, Adam's father, writing down things he has discovered of history of the past from his own journeys and travels. To what purpose, though? To what meaning? To what extent? Because he's writing this down. He hasn't shared it. He hasn't given this to his son to read. What is this man trying to do? Is he trying to, in some way or sense, justify who he's been? Maybe. But the thing that stands out to me is that he has not given this piece to his son yet. And then the question becomes, why? Which led eventually to, in the prologue, the beat of Adam as he's left alone in his house, remembering his father and a conversation with him as they talk about translating some of this and Adam stumbling upon a piece of it and Joseph taking it out of his hands, realizing, no, I can't let you know this. I can't let you see this. Mm -hmm. It's not ready for you yet. I'm not ready to explain to you or let you understand this. And those little snippets of narratives, this king and the prince, their journey, that story, that ended up becoming these interstitials throughout the book as bits and pieces of what Joseph is trying to make sense of, to convey to his son, to tell the narrative, the story of how he came to be and their family through this fable, I guess. That helped me reveal that deeply, because again, some of that monstrosity Adam inherits is his own father's, from his own father's actions and behavior. That this man of great passion, desire, and love did not know how to act with it. And that finally allowed me to see where this beat fit into the greater narrative. But it was not easy. It took about a week and a half for those things to fit into place. And if, and if it never found a way to fit, it would have been left by the wayside or for another work or anything like that. Quite possibly. I have what became another series that started like that. But first, tea. Yeah. So that's all for tonight. If you like what you hear and you want to show you as a born, you can subscribe to us at patreon.com slash Diaries. That's with a Y. For a dollar or more. There are all kinds of rewards, including access to our online workshop and Discord. Of course, if you have a story of your own that you'd like to share, or have us revise, you can write to us at my name dot my last and you me diaries. See you all next time. This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.